The Guardian. In June 1925, physicist Werner Heisenberg retreated to a windswept island called Helgoland or Heligoland in the North Sea. He was really just beginning his career, and yet, clambering over rocks and looking out over white sands, he was on the cusp of a discovery that would unveil an entirely new perspective on the world, quantum theory. As quantum unfolded itself, observations about the behaviour of atoms, energy and light became explainable. A lot of that behaviour was very strange. Electrons seemed to be in two or more places at once. When taken far away from each other, particles appeared to instantaneously know things about one another, something Einstein termed spooky action at a distance. Quantum theory unleashed mysteries so incomprehensible that they've baffled both scientists and philosophers to this day. So how should we understand quantum physics? Will we ever get to the bottom of its enigmas? We have a, a theory that works very well. In fact, I, I would say more than a theory that works very well. It's probably the theory that works best that we ever had in science. And yet, if we try to ask, okay, so what is it telling us about the world? It's, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, it's telling us about the world, don't ask. I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. These questions are certainly not for the faint-hearted, but in a new book, physicist Carlo Rovelli addresses the conundrums of quantum theory and puts forward an explanation he believes makes sense of some of the strangeness. I sat down, virtually of course, with Carlo to discuss these ideas. We'll be playing our conversation over two parts, and apologies, the audio quality didn't come out great. In this episode, I get a crash course in quantum, and we take a look at superposition and entanglement. First, though, I wanted to go back to the genesis of the theory. Carlo, your new book opens with and is named after Werner Heisenberg's visit to an island in the North Sea off the coast of Germany called Helgoland or, or Heligoland. And it's, it's here that age 23 Heisenberg draws up a mathematical framework for quantum mechanics. What was it that drew you to this moment in the history of quantum? My work is in quantum gravity, applying quantum mechanics to, uh, to space and time, to gravity. And uh, to do that, understanding well quantum theory, quantum physics uh, is necessary, is needed. Uh, so I've been wondering and puzzling about uh, quantum physics and its mysteries, the aspects of it that we don't understand well, all through my research uh, career. And for that, I have also gone back to the original works when the theory was born. There is a specific moment in which the key idea emerged. And so I focused on that moment. And from that particular moment, uh, uh, rapidly, actually, the rest of the mathematical formulation was set up and the theory became actually the foundation of modern physics. And that particular moment was on this island when this kid, in fact, was 23, alone, got the, the key idea. And I think it's recognized, was recognized at the time, the old masters of the story recognized that Heisenberg is, is the one who find the key. He's the only one who got the Nobel Prize for actually the discovery of quantum mechanics. 
even if we can't follow the mathematics ourselves, what are the core ideas that quantum physics introduced? What, what are the key sort of concepts we need to understand that are different in quantum physics? The core ideas of quantum physics, the, the, the novelty of quantum physics with respect to previous physics are, are three, I would say. And uh, two of these are rather simple to understand. Perhaps surprising uh, for somebody schooled in, in Newtonian physics, but uh, pretty elementary and simple. The third one is more complicated. The third one is the, it's a mystery of quantum mechanics in a sense. So the first two are uh, uh, discreteness and, uh, and probability. And discreteness is the discovery that a lot of quantities, uh, physical quantities like velocity, momentum, angular momentum, energy, the, the quantities that physicists use to describe the motion of things. A lot of these quantities that we used to think could take any value, in fact, it's not true that they can take any value. They can only take some specific value, some discrete values. Not, not any continuous possibility of, of, uh, of values. This means essentially that in the small, there is a sort of discreteness, granularity. For instance, uh, light, we can think of light macroscopically as a wave that arrives continuously. So when light, for instance, arrives on a screen, there's a continuous arrival of energy on the screen. But if we make precise measurements, that's not the case. When light arrives... Uh, on, on a screen or, or on our eyes, it actually arrives in little packets, in discrete packets of energy. These are the quanta, and that's what gives the name of uh, the theory. So things are quantized, meaning they're, they're granular, they're made, made by little packets. In fundamental physics, in particle physics, the very existence of the particles, the, the electrons, it's a manifestation of this uh, granularity that was discovered with quantum mechanics. Nature is not continuous. The second discovery is that in the previous century, we got fooled, <laughs> fooled by Newtonian physics into believing that in principle, knowing everything about the present could allow us to uh, compute everything about the future exactly. Quantum physics was surprised because nobody expected that shows uh, very clearly that this is not possible. What we uh, measure at some time does not uniquely determine um, what's going to happen next, nor actually allows us to know what happened before. So determinism is out in that sense. This does not mean that we cannot compute anything. In fact, quantum mechanics is all about computing things. But what we can compute is only the probability of something uh, to happen next. So... The second novelty of quantum mechanics is uh, uh, probability. These are the two easy ones. Then there is the, the hard one. And the hard one is uh, it's a one that has given rise to all the discussions about quantum mechanics. It is still giving rise to the discussion of quantum mechanics. And it's the following. The name of this could be uh, observable, so something like that. It's a fact that the way we think of nature in the Newtonian paradigm in the, before quantum mechanics is that science gives us a picture of what is happening, right? So science of, I don't know, of the solar system, we have a mathematical models, we put our measurement in, uh, we say that, well, Venus is there, Mars is there, the Earth is there, and then the, the theory, we can do calculation and then we can see what happened next. 
But the theory tells us what happened moment by moment. Knowing that, we can anticipate what we're going to see if we look later on. That's not the case in quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics describe the world in an astonishingly effective way, but in a different manner. It describes the world as, as it was a black box. Namely, we, we feed the mathematical model with what we know now, and then the mathematical model tells us uh, what are we going to see later on, or the probability distribution, what we're going to see later on, without telling us what happened in between. And that's very surprising. So the theory does not describe what happens. It only describes what we see, what we're going to see. It's like, uh, describe nature like if it was a, a closed box where once in a while we look and uh, the theory predicts what we're going to see. But if we try to fill in what happened in between, it just doesn't work. In a letter that Heisenberg wrote to his uh, good friend uh, Pauli, Wolfgang Pauli, just back from Helgoland, from the island, uh, he wrote, nothing is very clear for the moment, but the electrons... Uh, will not have an orbit around their nucleus in the atom anymore, which is a strange phrase, but it means that in his language, in, in, the, in the mathematical language he has described, the electrons in the atom are not described as uh, little planets orbiting around the, the nucleus. They're just described uh, by some mathematical mysterious thing, which allows us to predict what we're going to see if light shines on the atom and we see atoms coming out. Einstein reacted to that saying this is a witchcraft uh, calculations. And this is actually the way we use the theory today uh, always. So the theory is formulated in terms of what we observe and not in terms of what happens. And that's a mystery. Two things we often hear talked about within quantum physics are these rather sort of frightening concepts of quantum superpositions and, and then entanglement. Can you just explain to us what those two things are in quantum physics? Superposition is related to what I just said. Namely, the theory does not tell us what happened in between two observations. So if we make an observation, say the position of a particle, then we wait a little bit and then we look again and we see the particle in, in another position. The theory tells us where the particle is going to go, given where it was before. But if we ask what happened in between, when we're not looking, as I said, the theory doesn't, doesn't tell us anything. If, if you look into the mathematics of the theory, into the mathematics, what is happening is like the theory is in, in various positions at the same time. And that's superposition. For instance, um, the, this is a typical uh, uh, conceptual experiment that one always thinks in, in quantum mechanics. Uh, suppose I have a wall with two holes and a particle on one side of the wall. The particle is moving and uh, after a while you see the particle on the other side of the wall. Well, in, in classical thinking, of course, the particle has to have passed through one or the other of the two holes. This is called the two-slit experiment. They're called slits. But if you if you actually use this fact uh, in, in quantum mechanics, you, it doesn't work. You get a contradiction. It's like the particle goes through both. And in fact, in the mathematics, uh, you describe the particle as a sort of wave uh, that opens up in space, uh, passes through both uh, holes, 
And then on the other side, uh, when you look at it, mysteriously, it's the particle again. It's not a wave. Now, of course, we never see this wave. We only see the particle. So the superposition is really a language that we use to say that the particle does not have a position when we are not looking. The theory is not telling us about the position of the particle when we are not looking. And if we try to feed in the usual intuition, we have to sort of think that the particle is in two positions at the same time. This is okay when sort of we think about electrons. We say, well, an electron is a sort of has some wavy aspect, so maybe it can pass through through two holes at the same time. But but quantum mechanics is supposed to work, and in fact it does work for everything, including macroscopic objects. So Okay, if I say, all right, quantum mechanics gives me the probability for you yeah, being here or there, but in between you're in a superposition of two, of two positions, what does it mean? How would you feel of being in a superposition of two positions, right? That's the mystery of quantum mechanics. And that's the famous Schrodinger cat mental experiment. And Schrodinger came out with this little story in which you have a cat and you do a quantum mechanical something. And so you put the cat in a superposition of, uh, of a live cat and a dead cat. Then when you look, you find either one or the other. Now, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything. It actually means that the theory forbids you for thinking that between two observations, the cat is uh, it's, it's in one or the other state. More precisely, in the theory itself, if you assume that it's either one or the other, you get contradiction and you get wrong prediction of what happened next. So people had this idea of superposition in, in mind, which is really a description of the mathematics, not the description of the physics. That's, a, that's what uh, superposition is. But it makes clear how confusing is this fact that uh, the theory doesn't allow us to say what happened in between observations. And is entanglement caught up in all of that as well? Entanglement is a side effect of superposition, but uh, adds one level of, uh, of mystery, and is the fact that uh, two separate particles, so two particles that, uh, or two objects, two, two anything, but let's say two particles, that were nearby first and then were, uh, have been separated, and even if they're very distant from another, can be in a superposition in the mathematics uh, between two states. So, for instance, they can be in a superposition of both red and blue. If you look at one particle and you see it red, then uh, it is red and the other uh, far away is also red. And the question is, how does the other far away know that was one or the other? It seems that uh, the two particles either communicate super fast, physicists don't believe it's possible because of, of, of what they think about space and time, or that somehow they knew from before being separated uh, whether they were both red or both blue. I mean, it's nothing surprising in the fact that if you, if, if you look at something somewhere, you suddenly know about something far away, right? If I send two things of the same color into different places and you don't know which color it is, but as soon as you receive one, you suddenly know that the other one is the same color. But this also turned out to be not the right explanation, because if you, if you think that this is the case, you can predict that there are peculiar correlations between uh, the two distant particles, uh, which are not true. I mean, it can be measurably not true. And this was a result of the work of uh, John Bell in the 60s uh, that showed very clearly that uh, under some extremely reasonable assumptions, 
it's impossible that the two particles knew before separating whether they are red or blue. The bottom line is that entanglement is a strange connection between things which are separated from one another, which we cannot just understand how it works. So what you've laid out, Carlo, through this crash course in quantum physics so far are some really fundamental and ultimately quite philosophical questions about the nature of reality and, and how matter works, what objects are and so on. How were scientists coming to terms with these questions? What sort of ideas did they come up with to try and understand what was going on? There are various ideas uh, out and various attitudes. One attitude, which is, uh, it works very well, is uh, who cares? I mean, I, I don't want to know what happens when I'm not looking. That's doable. But it leaves us with a sense of uh, complete puzzlement, right? I mean, why cannot we know where is the electron when I'm not looking at it? What does it mean? There are ideas. So there are many solutions of this problem. The point is that each one of these, it's uh, disconcerting. They're all disconcerting. And uh, let me just give you some ideas about what these solutions are. One is to take very seriously the mathematics itself and uh, this wave that is used in, in the mathematical apparatus to predict what happened, it's actually the real thing. This is a bit funny at first, right? Because you, you never see the electron as a wave and uh, you always see the electron at one point. And the wave tells you the, that the electron can, can be in two different positions. So why do I see it in just one position? So one solution, which is called the many-world interpretation of quantum mechanics, is that the electron is really spread in different positions. But when you look at it, you yourself get spread. So you are also in a superposition. And this means that there is just one you, there are many you. Each one of these see something different. And why do you see only one thing? Because you are one of them. So <laughs> the way many word interpretation try to make sense of quantum mechanics is that we actually exist in many copies of ourselves, which are all true, all real, all described by physics. What happens every time that we look at something is that we, we sort of split in real copies of ourselves, each one seeing something different. If it is so, it means that uh, we are actually one of zillions of versions of ourselves, each one seeing a slightly different world. One may think, well, isn't there a less crazy way of making sense of this theory? Another solution is to believe that there is a layer of reality which is sort of underlying what quantum mechanics describe. This is called hidden variable theories that describe what is going on but are in principle inaccessible to us. And they're very strange underlying theory. They have to be non-local to, to, to account for, for entanglement. So what happens here depends on what happens far away, which is something that for physicists today is very hard to digest. So one can make sense of quantum mechanics by, by believing that, once again, there are aspects of reality that in principle we cannot access. And sort of behind the scenes, in a magical way outside space and time, arrange things correctly. And, and one can write equations and, and this sort of works. So there are ways of making sense of quantum mechanics. They're all very costly uh, conceptually. And I think the current situation is... Um, that we really don't know which conceptual cost is better to pay to make sense of the theory. 
So what we have in quantum theory and where we've got to in quantum theory is even after a century of working with it and knowing that it works brilliantly, we still don't understand it particularly clearly um, and have multiple different explanations as to, to what's going on. Is that about right? That's exactly right. We have a theory that works very well. In fact, I, I would say more than a theory that works very well. It's probably the theory that works best that we ever had in science in the sense that uh, in a century of applications, it has never been found wrong. It, it doesn't mean that it's perfect, it's going to be correct forever, but so far... Uh, it has never been found wrong. But not only that, we have no idea where it could go wrong. I mean, we have other theories, that, like general relativity, Einstein theory, that uh, have never been found wrong. What we know that the center of black hole should not work, because it just doesn't work there. So we know the limits of this theory. We expect to find the limits if we just could make sense of what happened there. But quantum mechanics, no. We, we have no hint about its possible limits. And it has given us predictions like entanglement, which was first predicted and then observed, <laughs> or the possibility of doing quantum computing, right? Lasers, all sorts of things were predicted theoretically and then realized concretely. So it's an extraordinary reliable theory. It works fantastically. And yet, if we try to ask, okay, so what is it telling us about the world? It's, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, it's telling us about the world, don't ask. <laughs> That's it for part one. On Thursday, we'll be leaving the shores of Helgoland and heading into deeper waters to investigate the relational interpretation of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is a discovery that when you describe a system, a physical system, you cannot avoid a talking also of anything else which is interacting with it. And what this means for our concept of reality. Once again, it works with a price. And here the relation interpretation is asking us to think that what an object really is, is the way it is interacting with everything else. Join us again on Thursday for that. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.